is the errors that get deep down in your code base that are the toughest to wash out. How? Use new fashion smashing with exclusive learning action. Bugs just float away with smashing. So help your family's code stay spotless with easy to use smashing. In this episode of the Smashing Podcast, we ask how you can ship a $1 billion idea. Fiddly Friedman talks to Paul Boag to find out. But first, did you know that Smashing Magazine publishes brand new articles to the website throughout your working week? There's a lot to keep up with, but we're here to help. It's your weekly update. In Accelerating UX Maturity with a Breakthrough Project, John Scott Bowie shares the story of 40 years of attempts to advance corporate UX maturity that, after numerous initiatives with marginal results, culminated in a breakthrough project that accelerated a company's UX maturity from emergent to user-driven in less than a year. In the tutorial How to Build a Localized Website with Hugo and Strappy, Zara Cooper explains how to use Strappy's internationalization feature to create content in multiple languages. You can also learn how to create a Hugo site that consumes localized content from Strappy. Vitaly Friedman continues his Design Patterns series with a look at designing a better pricing page. Analyzing real-world examples of different pricing pages in the wild, Vitaly guides you through the process of designing a page that works best for your needs. In an accessibility-first approach to chart visual design, Kent Eisenhuth and Kai Chang explore how an accessibility-first approach led them down the path of creating a better visual design for charts. Throughout the article, they highlight how they use the seemingly constraining web content accessibility standards to become an empowering factor in the design process. They also discuss how this approach led to an unexpected, yet better outcome for everyone. Oh, yeah! And... Lyndon Serejo gives us a five-step approach to the metaverse. The hype surrounding the metaverse is making many companies and people, including designers, experience FOMO. As a designer, you may be tasked with figuring out how your company should approach the metaverse, or thinking about designing for the metaverse. In this article, Lyndon discusses a few steps he recommends before diving headfirst into any design for the metaverse. And that is your weekly update. Find all these and more at smashingmagazine.com slash articles. He is a user experience consultant, conversion rate optimization specialist, and all-around expert in digital transformation from Dorset in Southwest England. He helps savvy marketers, product owners, and UX advocates make the case that a usable, accessible, and people-first experience, and I'm not reading this, I'm saying this, is the best path to business success. In fact, he's worked in digital for 25 years, and according to his Twitter profile, he's a very grumpy old man off the web. Apparently, he also is an author of six books on topics such as conversion rate optimization and digital transformation, and he provides coaching, training, and consultancy for digital strategy. So, we know he's an expert in digital transformation, conversion rate optimization, and UX, and all that stuff. 
But did you know that he spends every Saturday evening drinking tea and chatting with his Cheshire cat called Frankie? Mm. Lies! My smashing friends, please welcome Paul Borg. And hello, Paul. How are you feeling today? Not bad, all things considered. That's, that's the official British answer to how are you. There's a really funny comedian called Bill Bailey um, who talks about that. You see, he says about, you know, how Americans, you know, when they're asked how they are, they're awesome. You know, everything's awesome. It's an awesome day and I'm having an awesome time. Well, the British say, well, not bad. That's as good as it ever gets. But that not means bad. that it's pretty All okay. Considered. Yeah, okay. It means, yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's a good thing. Not bad is good. Right, right. Well, it's wonderful to have you back here. I mean, we go way back and it's wonderful to see you in person as well. Although I have to admit in a very different setting with a very great background in the back and no fancy lamps, no fancy lighting, not even fancy microphones. What's going on with your life, Paul? I was told that you're not no, uh, now not at home and this is kind of going to stay this way for a while. Yeah. So it, it's your fault. Because I, I, I saw your jet-setting lifestyle for so many years when you were traveling around continually, and I thought, I want that. Uh, but, but, but being me, being old, and, uh, and not quite as adventurous as you, going from Airbnb to Airbnb, uh, we bought an RV out in the States. And so we're now traveling around. Um, we're basically trailer trash now. We're, we're traveling around the States you know, sleeping in car parks and and just vis- visiting the visiting the various places around the uh, the states. It's good actually. It's very enjoyable. But yes, it means I don't have my fancy podcast set up, and I just look like a disembodied head amongst the brown background. No, that's not that bad actually. So uh, I should give you credit for that. That actually you blend in well. Uh, talking about blending <laughs> in, I would say. Uh, it's interesting because now always when I think of you, I always think about all the things that you've been doing all, all these years, and it feels like you had so many different hats. Uh, you know, at one point, you would be doing mostly UX, then you would be doing digital strategy, and then you were coding websites back in the day as well, right? And, uh, yeah, well, you know, we all did back in the yeah, day. Yeah, sure, and, and also we, you know, I, we worked in agencies and being a part of, a big part of an agency and now having your own big career as a digital UX consultant. So I'm wondering, um, you know, there might be some people here listening, thinking about just who are just starting out their career, and you know, UX is a is a good thing to kind of dive into. Uh, is there anything, Paul, that you are now looking back, think, okay, I wish that when I was starting out, when was it like 20, 25 years ago, I wish I had known X or Y. What would be those things? Yeah, I mean, it was 27 years ago now. Um, which is terrifying. Um, yeah, it's a question that I often get asked. Um, it's a, I think the main thing that I would say to myself, I, and of course it was a very different world back then, um, and the web was very different. So a lot of the, you know, people often ask me, oh, what advice can you give someone starting in their UX career today? Well, none, because I started mine so long ago that it was totally different, you know. But in terms of what I would tell myself, which is what you asked, I, I think I'd tell myself, um, focus on the soft skills. Um, you know, don't get caught up on the latest tool or the latest design technique or, you know, 
whatever. Those things come and go. Um, but, you know, interacting with people, um, being persuasive, uh, presenting your ideas well, um, not being a, a complete, you know, idiot to work with. Those are the kinds of skills that really last. So, and, and we're really bad at teaching those, you know, uh, take Smashy Magazine. And, and this isn't a criticism of Smashy Magazine because everybody has got this problem. You know, you'll find hundreds of posts about design techniques, uh, development techniques, all of those kinds of things. But you don't find as many posts about, you know, how to survive a meeting with your boss or how to pitch the design in or, you know, how to to review somebody else's code without coming across as an asshole. You know, that, that, those are the kinds of skills that I think are in short supply. Well, maybe we should change that. I mean, I heard that you have a bit of time while you're traveling <laughs> places. Would you like to write a few articles, maybe? That would be just on that well, topic. Well, to be honest, yeah. I mean, to be honest, a lot of the articles I have written for you have been around that, that yeah, kind true. of thing. That's right. You know, because right. I, I do tend to write that kind of stuff because I think it's important. I mean, the favorite article I ever wrote for you um, was one about mental health, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. um, you know, you're not a machine and you're not alone, which is, is still one of my favorite articles I've ever written because I think it was a, a very important article to write, but it had nothing to do with design or development. Well, I remember another article that you wrote a while back that got quite a bit of, um, how would put it best, um, it was argued, many people were arguing if this is a good, um, way of kind of explaining things or not because you rem I remember vividly you publishing that article about SEO right <laughs> yeah, do you want to share that story um, not really no because I don't <laughs> want to drag it all up again um, no so so I wrote I wrote an article saying that that um, yeah SEO I can't even remember really what it said I but basically remember. I was I I was rude about SEO, wasn't I? Uh, and, uh, and said, but that was a long time ago, to be honest. And SEO has come a long way since then. It, it was back in the day where, where SEO was, you know, a lot of smoke and mirrors and, and, you know, oh, we're gonna, we're gonna spam links and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Now, of course, because the algorithm, Google's algorithm has matured, you know, most of SEO is basically good content, um, which is, is great. You know, that's the way SEO should be. And actually, that was what I implied in the article back then, that you should just focus on creating great content. But that wasn't that what I said, as I remember. Yeah, yeah, Spend I mean, your money on content, not on SEO consultants. Yeah, pretty much. So there are plenty of SEO consultants that came your way and decided to argue with you in the comments. <laughs> I remember that vividly. Not only in the comments, I'm sure. But it, was, but it was really good, you see. See, I think I think sometimes it's really difficult because you we've lost the ability to disagree um without it escalating um uh, i mean that did escalate to some degree you know there were a lot of people that strongly disagreed with me but i had some amazing conversations out of the back, back of that and i actually posted a follow-up post on my own site which basically said you've educated me you know i, I you're, you you know my the view that i shared of seo on on smashy magazine was even then a little bit out of date um and that that they were seo was already transition transitioning away from what i described it as being towards more being content focused um 
and so you know it was it was a really educational process for me and and i think it was a very worthwhile conversation but these days it's like you know that that would have exploded up into a, a, a quite a violent and you know obnoxious you know discussion um and it did to some degree even then but not as bad as i think it would have done today That's about right. That's about right. Well, you mentioned that you, you know, you've been in this industry for now 27 years. That's a lot of time, of course. Um, yeah. That uh, makes me wonder, though. So, you know, you've been doing this, some maybe some kind of similar work uh, for such a long time. Um, so, have we actually managed to sort out these general misunderstandings about the role of UX and what UX means and how to use UX and how to transform organizations? Because it seems like we still keep running in circles, having the same conversations. So did we fail at kind of doing the good UX education work out there? Or where do you see the state of things now, working with companies and organizations, small and large? Yeah, yeah. I mean, things have certainly progressed. Um, they're much better than they were. So um, I think most organizations recognize now the value of UX, which is a huge step forward. They didn't always. Um, I think there is a much in the many larger organizations um ux is taken more seriously um and it does have that you know in quotes seat at the table to some degree um i think however there is still a lot of confusion about what ux is and what it isn't i think it's still used interchangeably with ui so ux ui designer um well in my mind those are very different roles so yeah i mean we're making progress but you know like anything these things take time don't they you know um cultural change is always difficult and when you're talking about an entirely new discipline and integrating that into existing organizations that, you know that doesn't happen overnight um and you know we're still only a quarter of a century old which you know is barely out of our teens That's right. That's about right. Uh, well, now that you're talking about those large organizations, large companies, um, you know, because you're spending quite a bit of time working with companies on digital transformation. And I even heard that you wrote some books about I this. I did, topic. which are published mm. by Smashing Magazine, an excellent publishing house. Okay. Oh, that's very kind of you. But this was not supposed to be a promo uh, <laughs> at all, actually. But I'm actually quite wondering because I'm, I'm working on my own in some kind of really large organizations and they are bringing along this notion of let's establish a UX culture. This sounds very foreign, something, it's something that doesn't feel almost alienating to some people. Like, oh, you want to do this now? We've been always working differently. So why should we do that now? Why should we change that now? So what would be then your starting point if you want to start moving an organization, again, uh, of any size really, towards something that would be a little bit more user-centric? They have their own, of course, business goals. They have their own KPIs. Yeah. They have their own old way of thinking. And in my experience, changing the way people work is... It's hard. It takes sometimes not even years, it, like multiple years. It's, uh, it's really, really difficult. So, so how would you start moving the needle? Yeah, the bigger the organization, the longer it takes to turn. Um, I, I mean, there are, so many, there are different ways of doing it, top down or bottom up. Um, if you do it top down, then you, you basically are targeting senior management uh, initially. 
Um, uh, and sometimes, you know, someone in senior management gets it. Um, and then you can start chipping away, um, uh, from that angle. But most of the time it has to come from grassroots. And really, I think of it like a political movement, um, you know, uh, that let, let's take changing, changing policy towards the environment, right? You know, if you just go in and you write to your MP, you're not going to get anywhere by yourself, okay? Um, the way that you you get, you know, large-scale change like that is you you band together with other people that feel the same. You make a lot of noise um, and you get the attention of those people in power. And fundamentally, it's the same when you're trying to change an organisation. You have to find allies. You have to find other people in the organisation that have got the same desire to be more user-centric. Um, now, they might not know the term UX, um, but they they might, you know, marketeers, for example, every, you know, UX people are very rude about marketers, but ultimately they want to, to achieve the same thing um, because they want, you know, they want customers to be happy because if customers are happy, they repeat by, they recommend you to other people, etc. So you could go to those people and you start creating an informal group of people that share your views on UX. And then you start to mobilize just like a political movement would do. Write yourself a manifesto, right? What, you know, what do you stand for? What do you want? What change do you actually want to see? Very specifically, then do you start propaganda, basically. You start doing lunchtime sessions sharing ux best practice you you send emails around you you getting guest speakers you um you make a noise you know i've run internal conferences within organizations i've started newsletters internal blogs you run a marketing campaign promoting um user experience best practice um and that that's how you do it and you begin to build momentum over time and only go to senior management when you have got sufficient momentum that they can't ignore you. Um, uh, but that you're right. That takes time. It takes time to build that kind of culture. Yeah. So for uh, the, the interesting part for me is really that very often it feels like you really have to be so well prepared for that meeting with senior management. Yeah. Sometimes it feels like you have like 20 minutes shot. This is the window that you get. Yeah. And if you can convince them, that, that that's the only chance you get because nobody's going to be talking to you ever. That's that, but that's you, that, you, then you're doing it wrong, right? Um, I, mm. I've walked into meetings like that. I've been in meetings like that. But I already know the result by the time I step through the door, right? Um, basically, you've got to that – a meeting like that has got to basically be a rubber stamp by that stage. You have got to have spoken individually – to each of the people in that meeting before the meeting, you have need to have won them over beforehand. And a lot of that is about, let's say, you know, it's a couple of mistakes people make. First of all, they go into meetings like that and they go, well, no one think of the user and nobody cares about the user other than you. Um, so that's mistake number one. And then that's a little bit disappointing. Yeah, but it's true but because we're all inherently selfish and we're no different. Right. If somebody from the compliance team said to you, will you not think about our legal obligations? Right. Are you telling me you would really give a shit? No, of course you wouldn't. 
right? Because you're selfish. You care about users because you're a user experience designer. So we all are selfish. We all think about our own individual areas. So that's one thing. Don't talk about the users. You're wasting your time. The second thing with those kinds of winning over senior management is um, that you've got to, you, you can't, you've got to, you've got to not ask for too much, right? So let's say, for example, I don't know, let's say you're Disney, right? And you're a little group in Disney and you want to, you've got this amazing idea of, of um, you want to create magic bands with RDF chips in that could do all these incredible things, but you know it's going to cost a billion dollars to renovate all of the, the hotels, all of the, the um, theme parks, all the rest of it. You don't go into senior management and say, can I have a billion dollars? Because they're going to say no, no matter what it is that you say. What you do is you go in and say, can I build a prototype, a proof of concept? right? For a much smaller fee using a backlog, right? And this is exactly what Disney did. So so reduce your ask, go for little steps, salami tactics to move towards your aim. And then in terms of the, um, not talking about the user, instead what you do is you go to each of those stakeholders and to the finance person, you say, well, if we implemented this magic band, um, yes, there's going to be a big upfront cost, but our ongoing um, you know, operational costs are going to go down as a result. Of course, the finance person likes that, right? And then you talk to the marketing person and you say, oh, can you imagine how um, excited kids are going to be to get their band and, you know, how people are going to photograph it and they're going to share their band and we can personalize the band so they, they're different. Um, it, they're going to love that. And then you talk to the operational director and you say, you know, oh, well, people won't have to have money and you won't, you know, so the number of transactions that are needing to be processed um, will go down and so we could be more efficient in the way we were. So I'm taking the same idea and instead of talking about the user experience, I'm tailoring it to each of those different people that I'm speaking to. So when I walk in the room, they're already all convinced, right? If otherwise you're wasting your time because you walk into the room, you give a pitch, you can't tailor it to the individual person. You've got not got enough time to convince them. So you've got to do it before you get there. Okay, well, I think we should be speaking a bit more uh, in the future, in the near future as well. Um, but maybe actually looking into uh, some, you know, more on the kind of navigation search kind of problems that often show up in websites. People don't find what they want to find. People don't can accomplish tasks that they want to accomplish. And let's imagine just taking an example, you have a huge site which has thousands and dozens of subsites, different departments owning different sites. Like it's all very messy. Some of them are kind of legacy. Some are just really poorly designed and all those things, plenty of content duplication, ambiguous labels, just all the best things kind of put together. Right? What would be kind of your process to actually just deal with that in a complex organization that has just literally hundreds, maybe even thousands of people involved that is willing to actually get better in terms of UX? Well, it depends what they, how willing they are. <laughs> well, they hired you, they hired the best person in town, so they pretty much are. No, 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 no. Yeah, oh, do you honestly think that that's the case? Lots of people think they're willing until they realize what is actually involved. Um, you know, in a situation like that, it, it may be that, that um, okay, I was going to make a flippant comment. I won't make a flippant comment. What would I really do? 
okay, in a situation like that, I think um, first thing I would want to do is audit everything. So, and I don't mean an in-depth audit because there'll be too much to, to do a proper content audit, but I literally would want a list of all of the sites. Um, and I would want to know, I would want an owner for every single one of those who owns it, right? And who is maintaining it. I'd also probably want some very top level, um, uh, analytics on it. You know, how much traffic is it getting over, you know, each of those sites is getting and a sense of when the site was last updated, right? And the reason that I want all of that is because normally in the vast majority of situations, um, there is just, there, there will be a load of stuff that could be just cold, right? Um, that nobody really owns, that hasn't been updated for, for the longest time, that um, is is just um, uh, has got hardly any traffic going to it. So the aim would be to to viciously cull back everything that was there, uh, and and the logic is very simple, right? The logic basically boils down to that for a long time there's been a perception that it's like a brochure. You publish it and you're done, which we now know is is not an option that you get rot, you know, redundant, out of date um, uh, and trivial content. Uh, and so any web service, any website needs to be maintained over time, which means it needs an active owner, an active budget, um, regular reviews, etc. So when you've got hundreds and hundreds of websites, potentially thousands of websites, you've got one of two options, haven't you? One is that you hire enough staff to actively manage every single one of those websites, right? Which you end up with, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people, basically, which is totally unfeasible. So you pitch that first. And of course, everybody says no, because, you know, that's completely unrealistic. There's no way that you can justify that. So that leads option B, which is to reduce your footprint, your digital footprint down to a manageable level, right? And so that means culling anything that can't be actively managed and maintained across the organization. But Paul, that means deleting and mm -hmm. archiving yeah. stuff. That's scary. Who wants that in a large organization? Who, who knows? Maybe we'll delete yeah. something important. Maybe we'll not be able to find something important. Who even knows all the dependencies? Uh, yes. on all those so things? you're not going to delete anything um, because A, why? Um, you know, the, the, the web is cheap. Having content online is cheap. Um, but what we need to do is we need to archive it. And by that, we need to remove it from navigation. We need to remove it from search. It, it can still be uh, Googled and any internal links that go to it will still work. Um, but then at the top of the page, we need to add a banner in uh, or notification that basically says this page has no longer been, you know, uh, being maintained. It was last updated on this date, right? So, so that can deal with anybody's fears that um, uh, that content is going to just disappear and that it's going to break stuff. Then there'll be other content that you have to have online for um, compliance purposes that nobody ever looks at, um, but it has to be there. Um, fine then with that kind of content, what you're going to do is you're going to remove it from navigation. Um, you may potentially move it, remove it from internal search, 
but you still have a direct link that you can share as you need to. Um, so there are lots of ways. Everybody thinks that every page um, that we have online has to be treated equally, has to be treated in the same way. It has to be part of the navigation. It has to be part of the search. In reality, probably most stuff doesn't. Um, you know, a lot of stuff is just legacy or or standalone content or um, that could just be direct linked, you know, that could be handed out on, as a URL, etc. Um, and then, of course, that simplifies your navigation down. It simplifies um, your search down. It means that people can indeed find the needle in the haystack, you know, so because you've just suddenly made that haystack a lot smaller. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really about stripping back to something that's actually manageable and maintainable by the organization. Uh, I can always hear people uh, screaming, like in the back of the room, screaming and asking about things that were related to what you mentioned earlier, uh, like all these practical tips about how to convince management about anything. I think at some point you were even thinking about writing an article, how to convince men. Oh, maybe it was my title. That you you suggested I write a convince... book on it. Um, with, yeah, uh, and? Uh, and... Uh, I said, I'll write an article for now. And I've actually written the article for you, but I just don't think you've published it yet. So it's your problem, mate. Uh, okay, well, I'll have to look into that. But maybe kind of uh, bringing this up again, it's um, it's always the same story. I think it's always very useful to get insight from experienced people like yourself about how would you even deal with situations where you get difficult clients, where you get scope changes that are coming in late, where you have situations when you just have really poor specification, you have communication problems, all those things, right? This is pretty much in every single project It's going to be appearing in one way or the other. So what would be your good strategy to deal with, on the one hand, with managers, right? Uh, and on the other hand, with clients? I, I mean, this is a, I, I do a whole day workshop on this. I've literally, I've literally <laughs> just done um, a workshop on that for um, front-end masters. Um, uh, and uh -huh. so, yeah, that it's, it, it's a huge subject. Um, that I think, What would be my top tip out of that? You surely have some top yeah, tips. Yeah, yeah. The trouble is a lot of it is to do with is kind of interlinked things. Um, so, for example, it's about how you set up a project in the first place um, and manage expectations out of the gate in terms of whose role is what and um You know, and and for, for let's take for example scope creep, right? With scope creep, there's nothing wrong with scope creep, right? Um, why shouldn't you know? As you go through a project, right, you learn things, don't you? You do user testing, hopefully. You do user research, hopefully. You just have ideas when you've seen the prototype that haven't occurred to you. So, what happens out of those things? You have ideas, you learn new things, you learn improvements and you want to improve it. So actually, scope creep is good, right? The only problem with scope creep is we insist on having projects with fixed budgets, with fixed timelines and fixed end, uh, deliverables, right? If we get rid of that idea, then suddenly scope creep is fine. But that's complicated to do. That opens up another can of worms, right? So one of the things that you, you might want to do is don't do these big, big website projects, right? 
So, I, you know, occasionally I get asked to redesign a website. I, I don't tend to do a lot of that work these days. Um, but uh, often if I'm asked to do that, I'm asked to kind of oversee the process. Um, and the first thing, as I say, is I am not going to do a um, project that is, you know, an end-to-end project, right, from from initial user research through to delivery and post-launch optimization. I'm not doing that as a single project. That is a big mistake. Instead, I'm going to run a series of smaller projects. I'm going to do a discovery phase, right, which is going to clearly identify user needs, the competition, the you know, um, the constraints, everything like that. And then that is going to inform me giving you a quote and a timeline for a prototyping phase where I create a visualization of it and I test that. And that visualization and that prototype, that's going to allow me then to quote for the build phase, right? And I could give you a price because each phase informs the next. So how you structure projects makes a big difference. And then, of course, that means that between each of those stages, between discovery and prototype, between prototype and build, you could change the scope all you want because it's another project. So things like that make a big difference as well. Um, so yeah. But what if, yeah? What, but what if you're working, let's say, like you have this big procurement processes and yeah. all these big companies and tenders yeah. and all those things where you kind of need to know upfront. Uh, I'm guessing, looking at your face right now, that you're going to say, just don't do them. Uh, but I'm wondering if this is the answer that we should be getting to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't do them, is the honest answer, because I'm I'm lazy. Um, and and I, 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 any time there's a procurement team involved which require fixed price and fixed scope, um, I immediately... That's a warning, warning flag, flag for me. Um, that that it's going to be a nightmare project. So I'm just too lazy to deal with it. But I understand that I'm in quite a privileged position. What what I did do when when I ran um, Headscape with projects like that, and my my preferred approach there is to yeah, I'll give them a ballpark for the the whole thing. Right, I will quote them for the whole thing. But it, in my um, tender, I will say that this is an estimate only, um, and I will introduce the idea of breaking the project down um, and, and doing it in a different way. There's nothing, just because you receive a brief asking for a certain set of deliverables and a certain thing, doesn't mean you have to give them that, right? Um, it, it's okay to say, hang on a minute, I don't think you're doing this in the smartest way, Right? Um, and that there is an alternative, better way of doing it. Now, one of two things will happen in a situation like that. Either they'll dismiss you out of hand, right? In which case, you really don't want to work on that project, right? Because it, it will be a nightmare from beginning to end. You, the, uh, the expectations will be unrealistic. It will be, you know, challenging. There will be... Um, problems with scope creep and all those different areas that we've just talked about, they will happen. There will be no way around them, right? So um, that would be a huge warning sign. Um, Or they go, oh, oh, these people are suggesting something different. Oh, that's interesting. And they'll actually like the fact that you've challenged their brief and, and suddenly all of your competition that have just blindly followed the procurement rules and the, and done what they were told to do suddenly look 
less proactive. They look less like they care about the project, that they want the best to the project. So actually, it's a really good way of differentiating yourself is to actually turn around and say, well, here's something that kind of gives you a sense of the overall budget but this is how you really should work it. And that ultimately it'll work out cheaper that way because obviously the overall budget, I have to add a load of guesses in there and a load of contingency in case my guesses are bad. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, so. I also see some uh, people uh, going, or some agencies or companies uh, using value-based pricing, where they actually go in and think about the impact that they can make in an organization and then kind of price Based on that, what's your take on this? It's BS. There you go. I, 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 here we go. <laughs> this is this is this could be SEO, the SEO article all over again. <laughs> I'm very much excited about what's coming up next, dear listeners. Please pay attention now. Bookmark this space, this spot in the recording. <laughs> oh, people are going to hate me for this. Um, Jonathan uh, uh, Johnson Stark. Um, uh, it is a great i think it's jonathan stark my brain is just shut down he's a really great guy who doesn't uh, pushes value-based pricing a lot um I, i'm cynical about it uh some people seem to manage to get it to work and and good on them and you know uh, well done them um but it, it feels like a fantasy to me um value-based pricing i understand theoretically makes a lot of sense if i'm if i'm gonna earn a company a million then it's perfectly reasonable for me to take you know 10 percent of that hundred thousand even though it's five grand worth of my time right that's perfectly reasonable don't disagree with the principle it's the reality of it that is difficult um for two reasons one is that in a vast number of projects depending on the type of projects you do that can be extremely hard to to prove to get real numbers right so unless it's an e-commerce site or something like that then actually it's pretty hard to to get a solid you know um uh, estimate on how much potential you could make secondly you're giving no guarantees that you will um get that level of return and you can't make those guarantees because there are so many variables involved you know, when you're quoting at the beginning of the project, you don't know what constraints may exist that would limit what you can do. You don't know what um, uh, what the client might say they want or don't want. They might come up with stuff that's a bad idea. You, there are so many things you do not know that there is no way on earth you can be confident you can generate that degree of return, right? Um, and so how then can you uh, say, I want this percentage of that number. So I think in principle, it's great and it sounds wonderful. In practice, it rarely works. So, Paul, then can you hear the voices from the back again saying, but, but Paul, but Paul, but we are UX practitioners. We are like, if you look into the number of jobs, applications all around on UX, it's like tons of openings. So how do you then become, because you were speaking about millions, how do you then become a millionaire by being a UX designer? It doesn't work. Uh, well, the reason I bring up this question is because my, uh, a good friend of mine told me once, many, many, many years ago, um, he's kind of more of my mentor, and he told me, well, you never become a millionaire by just working 24-7 or kind of being having a full-time job alone. 
you really need to think about passive income. You really have to think about how do you invest money and um, you cannot just make a lot of money by working non-stop. That's just not going to work. So how then do we become millionaires as you expect? Why are you asking me? I'm not a millionaire. Why I'm not? <laughs> <laughs> well, you do have a wonderful, fancy uh, chocolate background. In exactly. The well, this looks really <laughs> high quality, doesn't it? You can tell that. That I'm in a quality vehicle at the moment. Um, I, I, I would challenge, first of all, I would challenge, why do you want to become a millionaire? Um, uh, I, and this is really interesting. Take my, 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 my dad, for example, right? Um, my dad is, a, is a, a wildlife photographer. They have barely any money ever, right? They, they really, you know, they, 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 earn below the national average of the UK, okay? Yet, they travel around the world, right? They go on multiple cruises every year. They go all of these amazing places on somebody else's dime, right? Um, because he's a wildlife photographer um, and he's a, he lectures on cruise liners and stuff like that. So money, money is only a way of, of enabling you to do what it is that you want to do. So the question then becomes, what do you want to do? And this is because I do a lot of mentorship of agency owners, right? And uh, agency owners are always, you know, uh, a lot of them start going on about passive income and stuff like that. And uh, don't get me wrong. I have passive income. You know, I get passive income for the courses that I run. I, I would say the royalties from the books, but you know how little that actually is. But I, I do get, <clears throat> let's not yeah. put it out there well you don't get rich writing books everybody knows that it's you know that's not why you you know <gasps> that's, not why you write them yeah, yeah, I, yeah. It's, I mean unless you write harry potter or whatever you know um so so but i i do have passive income but not not an enormous amount but i live the life i want to live i go where i want to go i do what i want to do so the question then is not how do i become a millionaire but how do i get the lifestyle that i want right and that's a very different question. Um, and there are different ways of doing it. And passive income might be a part of it. In other words, an exit strategy where you sell on your business, whatever that is, and then you can retire early. Um, I take the approach of I've designed a business where I have to work four hours a day, right? Um, so, and that is achievable as a UX designer or UX. So you can get your rate to a point where, you can get away with working four hours a day, take home a good income, spend the rest of your time enjoying yourself. So, so I, I don't think the answer is just to become a millionaire. I think the answer is to get the lifestyle you want. That's my opinion anyway. Unless, of course, your lifestyle is yeah, I want to so, be not, in which case you do need to be a millionaire. <laughs> well, yeah, but uh, just because you're working on four hours a day, we cannot afford you anymore as, you know, because you're getting really, really expensive. No, I'm just kidding at this point. Yeah. I, well, no, I, no, I am very expensive, right? You know, I ch I'll, be, I'll be up front with you. I will charge anywhere between 195 and 165 pounds an hour, right? That is my, my rate, depending on the number of hours that you buy. Uh, and I can maintain a, uh, a charge-out rate at that level because I've built a reputation that means that demand for my services outstrips my ability to um to to supply that so basically i can charge and and weed out people that can't afford me unless i really fancy the project that's another this is how you should um should um 
priced projects, right? And this comes from Mike Coos. Do you remember? Do you know Mike Coos? Yeah. Uh, he's an amazing, yeah. amazing designer, yeah. amazing illustrator. And he told me this once. He said, when he comes to pricing, this is how he prices. He says to himself, how much would they have to pay me to make me want to do this enthusiastically? Right? And I think that's a great way of pricing. Okay? Because then you work on the stuff that you really, really want to work on right, that you really enjoy um, and because you charge that at a lower rate and then the stuff that you don't want to do, you charge at a higher rate, which subsidizes the stuff at a lower rate. So, Yeah, that makes sense. But, but, but what would you suggest then to people who maybe don't have that much experience and they kind of have to compete on the market and the market is quite saturated? I mean, if you're a UX expert, that's yeah. great, that works, but still... You go to, there are plenty of platforms which provide services for like $30, $50, $80. Yeah, don't play the game. Yeah, so what would be the strategy for kind of pricing there? So, so I, work, I work with a lot of agencies that um, are kind of working on, on these platforms like Fiverr and, you know, up, um, Upwork and stuff like that. Um, and and those, those platforms are universally, without exception, price-orientated right? So you're always going to be stuck at the bottom of the market and you're always going to be competing on price at that point. Um, and you're always also, you're competing against free stuff. You're competing against creating a page that you can use a template from on Squarespace. It's a losing battle. So you've got to move out of the bottom of the market. So how do you move out of the bottom of the market? Well, you start to build your own audience rather than relying on the audience that's provided by these marketplaces. Um, and, and, and I've got a course on this called finding clients where essentially you need to start, you need to decide, okay, I want to target a specific sector because most, most freelancers and agencies, their marketing approaches are terrible because they've got no training in it. They don't know how to do it. Nobody's ever taught them how to do this kind of stuff. And so they throw up the old blog post and they redesign their website for the 20th time. And they, they put out a few social tweet, uh, social updates and they, you know, they call that marketing, but that's, that's not going to win you any new clients. You need a, a, a strategy for targeting a particular sector, getting into that sector, building relationships with that sector. Um, and so you become the go-to person for that sector. And once you're the go-to person, once you're the person that everybody goes, higher education, you must go to Paul for, you know, that. Once you get to that point, because you're specializing, then you can push your rates up. Um, and also, you're, you're targeting a sector that isn't just going, oh, I need a cheap web designer, you know? Now, I know I've skipped over a lot of detail of how to do all of that, but, you know, we, we haven't got that long, have we? But we'll have another session on, on just that, I'm sure, uh, sometimes soon in the future, I think. Sure. Um, so maybe just one final question to wrap this, kind of slowly wrap this up. I think at, uh, just uh, two weeks ago, two weeks ago, I received an email from uh, from somebody who just, again, working maybe, I think, three or four years spent in the in the industry. And what they were asking is, uh, how do I negotiate my salary? So I'm working, let's say, for a product team, uh, in a product team, or I'm working in, a, in an agency, and it feels like you're hired for that position and you're kind of stuck. So, you know, the, you know, the inflation is now through the roof, and it doesn't seem like everybody is going to get any increase in a foreseeable future, also because the company isn't doing that well. 
So at which point and how, what would be kind of a strategic advice from your end to say, this is how you do it in order to increase your salary, at least, you know, get a stronger position in the company. Maybe instead of salary, have more ownership or anything like that over time. What's the right way of doing it? But you know, I, I don't really know. Um, th- sorry, that's a really answer to your last question. No, that's an honest answer. But that's good. The, the truth is, the reason I don't know is, I, you know, the last time I worked for a company was in 2001. <laughs> so, yeah, so I, I don't, it, it's not a, an area I work in. Um, I, 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 of course, I was an employer for a long length of time. Um, and I could tell you what an employer's big fears are, um, which is that you leave. Um, uh, and so our desire is to maintain our, our staff because getting new staff is really, really expensive. Um, so I think if you're getting dissatisfied with your salary, probably an honest conversation with your boss and say, look, I want to be completely upfront with you, right? I'm getting to the point where my, um, you know, my costs at home because of inflation and all the rest of it are getting high. Um, I'm going to need to start looking for another job, I'm afraid, right? Um, and instead of me taking lots of half days sick and that kind of stuff, you know, which is so obvious, I thought I'm going to be upfront with you and tell you instead, Um and if I get offered another job, I will come and talk to you first. And you can, ma- you know, if you want to match the salary, then we can certainly have that conversation because I don't want to leave here. But, you know, this is the situation that I'm in. And it might be that 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 is enough for them to want to nip that problem in the bud and they'll give you a, uh, give you an increase there. If not, follow through on that. Look for other jobs, find other positions. And if you do get an offer, go back to them you know so so sometimes that's the only way of doing it it's just honesty about your situation because most employers in my experience at least they they're not out to screw you over they've got their own targets and things that they're worrying about their own you know budgetary constraints and that kind of stuff um and so honesty is always the best policy isn't it really yeah that sounds about right well maybe the final one then so paul is there the universe in which you would be writing a book about all those things combined and again the management and the growth and i don't know what else do you have time don't you no i don't have time on my hands um I, i will write another book i inevitably write another book eventually um it's obviously quite a big time commitment to write a book um i don't think it could be about is it i think for you it's like it's easy peasy you just go ahead and say okay i can commit to the next three months and then i get a chapter once a week that's pretty much what the what it was like last time around yeah i mean i, I can write a first draft in about a month of, of solid effort um yeah. but i don't earn any money in that month you know so and you You've got to keep that in mind as well. I mean, we do pay oh, some pennies. Yeah, but but it, it, you know, it doesn't cover my charge-out rate, let's put it like that, which we've already established is unrealistically high. Um, so, so, you know, 
but of course it's it's uh, completely worth it for me to write a book because it, it it kind of you know generates new business and stuff like that but it does mean I've, i'm in an interesting position this is you know let's let's be honest about these things right i write books about subjects that i want to work in more right so when i wanted to do digital transformation i wrote digital adaptation when i wanted to do more organizational user experience cultural change i wrote user experience revolution when i wanted to do conversion rate optimization i wrote click that is simply how it works and every time without fail it shifts people's perception of what i'm um i'm an expert at and i win work in that right so it's a really good marketing strategy but there's the problem literally if i if i write a book on soft skills or i write a book on um you know winning clients or whatever what work does that bring me see that's the that's the interesting one isn't it and that's where you have to think ahead with these things and what i was saying earlier about your marketing approach needs to be strategic yeah perhaps it would um, get me more work with agency mentorship freelance mentorship and stuff like that but that's not a big earner compared to working for a multinational company well i know I, i have another title No, 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 I have another title. I would love you to write a book about something like, um, I don't know, establishing processes or working in large enterprise organizations. See, now that one, that's got a lot more, that's got a lot more potential, a lot more legs for it in terms of running my own business. I think so too. So when should we sign the contract then? No, no time soon. I'm afraid. I've got. I'm. I'm off enjoying my life at the moment. So okay. Well, that sounds about good. That's that's good enough for me. But I'm not going to let it go, Paul. Just saying. So I'm going to send you a few messages back and forth. Yeah, I'm feeling really bad about this interview. I feel like all I've all I've come across is this really callous person that won't do anything unless I'm paid a ton of money to do it. No, I don't think that's it comes across this way at all. I think it, uh, when I look at the articles and every now and again when I when I google anything really I will be stumbling upon one of the articles that you have written over all this like what 200 years? 200, yeah, coming up to 200. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty impressive. So with this in mind I think uh, you're you're in a I mean, I have no doubt that you do a lot of things also just because you honestly believe in them. If you, dear listener, would like to hear more from Paul, you can also find him on Twitter where he is at Paul Borg and on his website, which is, surprise, surprise, borgworld.com. Uh, his books on, you know, all the books that he so kindly mentioned uh, in the last five minutes are also available, of course, on Smashing Magazine, so you can also find them and read them. And if you want Paul to write more books... <laughs> Send him messages. I'm sure he'll appreciate that. All right. From that end, thanks so much for joining us today, Paul. Do you have any parting words of wisdom with the wonderful people listening to us now? I've I've always got the same one, which is success is going from failure to failure with no loss of enthusiasm, which is the Winston Churchill quote. And when it talks about whether you're talking about getting a pay rise, whether you're talking about um, changing the culture in your organization, whether it, or whether you're talking about getting a project over the line, success is going from failure to failure without any loss of enthusiasm. So just keep chipping away and you'll get there. This is Smashing. And that was our podcast. Thank you very much for listening. And if you liked it, please share it with your friends. Find us on the web at smashingmagazine.com on Twitter at Smashing Mag, Smashing Magazine on Facebook, or in the supermarket by the cat food. Oh, 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 oh,